It is like Christmas, almost, kind of, sort of. We got five weeks. We got five Sundays after Thanksgiving before Christmas this year, which is normally four. So you get one last of the series we're in, and then next week we'll start some Christmas songs. So just go along with us what we got today. I got two announcements. Number one is this. Uh, this coming Saturday is the uh, Women Imams Holiday Bazaar. Uh, if you are looking for some really cool stuff, come and buy all my wife's things. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, rain or shine, this thing is going to happen, all right? I got too much stuff in my car. Uh, it's, it's put on uh, by, by imams. What they do is uh, all the people who sell actually pay a vendor fee to come and do that, and that money goes into a set-aside account just for imams to do different events throughout the year. It's kind of a really cool thing. Uh, but all these vendors are going to have a lot of stuff that you can check out. My, gar- my wife does this upcycled furniture kind of thing, and my garage is full of it. In more ways than I want. No, my garage is full of this stuff. So if, if you'd be so kind, please take it all home so my garage empties. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, you don't have to do that. But there'll be a lot of people selling a lot of cool stuff. So if you would uh, be so inclined, next is next Saturday. I don't even know the times, but just show up at like 6 a.m. and hang out and wait. It's all going to happen. 9 o'clock till 3. That's how much I know. All I know is that I'm excited to get stuff out of my garage. All right. The second thing is the, the women's ornament exchange. If you've never heard about it, woo! It's already building excitement. If you've never been to one of these, uh, you know, buy some catcher's gear and just show up because you're going to need knee pads and helmets because I hear it gets pretty vicious. Uh, but the Women's Ornament Exchange is on December 5th at 6.30 p.m. Uh, there is limited child care, so if you do need child care, sign up so they know how many people they need to watch children during this. But this is where you guys, you ladies, you bring like a wrapped ornament that's supposed to be really, really cool, and then it's like deathmatch, and you fight over them in some way that's really fun. I don't know. They don't videotape these things, apparently, for insurance reasons. Uh, <laughs> you guys can hear it. Someone goes, this is true. So, yeah. Anyway, so it's, it, apparently it is a, a whole lot of fun. If, you're, if you want to come to that and your last name is A through L, you're going to bring a hearty appetizer. Now, a hearty appetizer doesn't mean it's good for you. A hearty appetizer means it's going to constrict your arteries and kill your heart. All right? That's a hearty appetizer. If your last name is M through Z, you're going to bring a dessert to share. A dessert to share. And if there's leftovers, I'll put them in the fridge, and I will eat them the next day. So that means bring cookies. All right, so if you, on your calendar, December 5th, 6.30 p.m. All sound good? Hopefully you're excited about it. I, I'm, I just stay away from the room because I know something's going to happen that's going to scare the snot out of me. So, hey, welcome to Element if you are new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. They're short little half sheets during the Reason for God series. Uh, hopefully during this time uh, you picked up the book, The Reason for God. Uh, if not, we have run out of copies we were giving away. So, hey, Amazon has one. Uh, so uh, Audible does as well if you want to listen to it. And Audible, you can do a free 30-day trial and get one book. And if you decide, I don't want Audible anymore, you get to keep the book. So it's a great way to get a free Audible book. 
called The Reason for God, so you get that. But uh, these actually go along with the messages. There's a lot more stuff in the books. We're kind of paralleling the books with the messages. But if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. You click on More and then Events, and we will come by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is John chapter 17, verse 3, and it says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who come to know you, in reality, who you are. And that would in turn inform our lives, so our lives would be lived out differently in this world. That we would reflect who you are, and your goodness, and grace, and your joy, and your hope, and your restoration. That we'd be a people who fully reflect who you are, because we understand better who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our last week in that series I was talking about called The Reason for God. Uh, the reason we're doing The Reason for God is we wanted all of you to come to a place where you understand that you can trust the Bible, what it has been written in it, uh, archaeologically, scientifically, that we can trust Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust how the scriptures are written and why we have them, we can trust the things that are written today. Just to give you a little heads up, next week we're going to start a series called We Three Kings. It's going to be five weeks because I can't count. Um, the first week... <laughs> It's going to be about the three wise men. The week after that will be about King Saul. And then we'll talk about King David, King Solomon. And on Christmas Eve, we're going to round it all out together talking about King Jesus. And then next year, we're going to do a series of the book of Ecclesiastes. I taught the Ecclesiastes once years ago. It was 13 weeks. This time, it's 33. Ha <laughs> ha! Okay? Because that's how we roll. And how we're going to do this is we're going to do the first two-thirds of it. We're going to do 20 weeks up until the beginning of summer. And then during the summer, we're going to do this fun summer series called I Believe in Miracles. You sexy thing. Right. That's where I got the idea from. It was stuck in my head. So that'll be the summer. You're going to have the entire time, right? Okay, anyway. And then after summer, we're going to do the last 13 weeks of the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's, it's all an effort to help grow us to understand better who God is and, and stuff like that. But today we are rounding out and ending our trek through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. Again, over the weeks, hopefully we've moved you to a place where you can trust and understand better who God is, why the scriptures can be trusted, how the Bible's account of the world actually makes the most sense. Keller uses the last chapter in the book to draw everything together, and he calls this the dance of God. And he sums up the Bible in the standard four-part narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And the reason he talks about as a dance of God is that Christianity is unique in many ways. One of them is it's our view of who God is, that God is a triune God. We believe that God is one God, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Dallas Willard, John Ortberg, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther all call this idea the dance of God. And the Trinity, what it does is it lets us see that God at his core is relational. Now, some people have criticized Christianity for talking about the Trinity or a triune God, saying that it's something that Christians made up. My standard response to that is, make it up. I mean, seriously, we've been discussing it for centuries, and we still don't fully understand it. If I'm going to make something up, I'm going to understand it. Okay, so that's, that's my thing. The Trinity, again, helps us to understand who God is, because we are people who believe that one of the distinctives is that God reveals himself. And God is not known by any human instrument or any human ability. God is known only through self-disclosure. God reveals himself to us. This is called revelation. Two weeks ago, Eric did an entire message talking about general revelation and specific or special revelation. 
General revelation is where God reveals himself by the things that he has created. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And Eric really spent that message kind of delving really deep into that. And then you have this thing called special or specific revelation. And this is a fancy way of saying that God's, God intervenes to make his will known in ways that we would not have known otherwise through general revelation. Most importantly, this is through the person and the work of Jesus, but this is also the scriptures. In the scriptures, God speaks to us and lets us know who he is. He lets us know about our relationship with him and each other and creation itself, and that we are called to be image bearers of him. In order to be image bearers, we need to understand better who he actually is. One commentator says it like this, special revelation is special because it is written revelation with the special purpose of explaining why man was created, what man is to do, what impairs man, and what God's solution is for this impairment. Special revelation enables us to know and understand God as a triune God, that God exists as three persons. In the, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, you have this really weird line in Genesis one twenty six, and God's making man, and he says, let us make man in our image. Now, for Christians looking at the totality of the scriptures, we see this as the beginning of the understanding of the Trinity. When God makes man, he makes us male and female. And don't mistake me when I say this, because I'm not a weirdo or something like that, but you have to understand, and I've got to get careful how I say this, but God is male and female. God's father and mother. God is holy. He's not like us. God is one God, but he is more than one thing, if that makes sense. Uh, People sometimes use this analogy of H2O, of water. Water can be a solid, it can be a liquid, or it can be a gas. Just not one of those things is simply H2O. All of those things actually are. And that's something they reference to the Trinity is kind of like that. It's not, God's not like water, God's like God, but you know, it's kind of that thing. And so in Judaism, when they got to Genesis 126 and God says, let us make man in our image, they don't know what to do with it. Even to this day, there's lots of debates in Judaism about that. But I believe the Trinity is where you have to go. And today you will hear that all religions are alike. They all speak to the same God. They just have different cultural contexts. And that's not true. Religions will differ in their view of God and man. And what marks Christianity really is different is our view that God has revealed himself to us as a triune God. And you may be wondering, why does this matter? Why does this matter to me? Because in the end, we will become like what we fall down to worship. Whether it's yourself or Allah or the Mormon Jesus or the real Jesus, we worship the triune God. Israel's great prayer is this thing called the Shema. And it's also written kind of strangely. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's kind of a weird way to talk about God. Well, the one the word one there, it's this word called echad. And it means singularity and plurality. It references like a cluster of grapes. One cluster with grapes on that cluster. It's the same word that's used of a marriage. When a husband and wife become married, they become one flesh. It's called one echad. One hechad, it's, it's two people, one married individual. It's, a marriage is meant to remind us of who God is. And so the Trinity, the word itself, was coined in the late 2nd century uh, to explain in one term what we believe the scriptures were showing us. The Jews worshipped one true God in a true way, but didn't understand this triuneness. In the case of the church, the church was worshipping God as a Trinity long before the word or the doctrine was really developed. It's kind of like my story. I became a Christian when I was 17 years old in 1987. A year later, they had me at a camp being a leader of junior hires. Like, who would do that? 
Like, even today, I'm like, who, who would do something like that? So the speaker from the front says, if you believe Jesus is God, stand up. And everybody stood up. Now, at that point, I didn't know anything other than Jesus loved me and he saved me. Okay, and then everybody stands up and I'm like, I guess we believe this. So I stood up. Right? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. And then, then the guy from the front says, if you can show me in the Bible where Jesus himself claims to be God, stay standing. And everybody sat down, including me, because I didn't know anything, right? And, and everybody sat down except for two people, and they were both wrong. It was awkward, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Uh, but at, it was at that point I decided I wanted to know what I believed and why I believe the things that I did, which is one of the things that lands me before you guys today. So if you're irritated with that, the guy's name was Dewey Bertolini. You can send him hate email. There you go. (laughs) Today I can show you from the scriptures where Jesus claims to be God himself, where Jesus accepts worship. I can show you the places where the Holy Spirit is called God and where the Father is very clearly God, the Trinity. But the term itself isn't in the Bible because it's something that was really just accepted. Paul never sought to explain the Trinity, but he constantly refers to it. Uh, In some of his earliest letters, in these documents we have, you see Paul referring to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. He does this in Galatians, Philippians, and 2 Thessalonians, and 1 Corinthians. It's clear that he considers them distinct yet divine. Even the title when he talks about Jesus, Jesus as Lord, that name Lord was used for God in the, in the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures. Pliny the Younger, who is not a Christian, he's a Roman official, outside the church, looked, was looking at the church of Christians and what they were doing, and he even says this, that they, re, that they gathered to sing hymns to Christ as to God. Even people outside the church knew that the church is worshiping Jesus as God. The church is baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus instructed them to do in Matthew 28, 19. The Apostles' Creed contains the lines, I believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ's only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And eventually, people get to a point where they want things explained to them. How does this work? How can this be? So in the second century, as I said, there's this church father. His name is Tertullian. Uh, Here's a picture. Looks good in yellow, by the way. Must have been his favorite thing. Uh, He's trying to help clarify this. And so he uses an analogy from Roman legal practice because he himself was actually a lawyer. Many times in the Roman Empire, an emperor shared power with his son, declaring his son co-emperor. And in all these cases, the empire is not divided. Each had full imperial authority over the land. Each is fully an emperor. Each is in possession of full imperial power. The power is not divided, yet each is not the other person. Tertullian writes this, Divinity is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one divinity, only one God, just as there is only one empire. So he's trying to explain this to people in their cultural context. Just as the emperor and his son are both fully emperors without creating more than one empire, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all divine without this resulting in more than one God. And this leads to a lot of words we have in Christian theology today, but Tertullian speaks of God as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all sharing one substance that they all partake in in a way that they all have its fullness. So he coins this term called Trinity. Trinity. Now open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Almost everybody in the church accepts Tertullian's explanation and analogy. Most in the church were already worshiping one God, Father, Son, and Spirit at the time. Some people didn't see a need to make up any terms, but most people were actually okay with it. And I tell you this because sometimes you will be in the same boat. There's going to be a lot of theological things you don't completely fully understand, and, and, and that's okay. And you will worship God without fully knowing a lot of this stuff. But it's important to know as best as we can to understand what we believe because, again, we will become like what we fall down 
down to worship. And we want you to worship the one true God. It's why we did this entire Reason for God series, so you can understand God better. Because this is all going to relate into how this all ends this whole series today. So, John 17, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says this. He's praying to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now flip over to John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Just, you're right there. So You're right there. Okay. He says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What you see in these verses is how the Trinity, how God and who he is in his person actually functions. They all point to one another. The center of the Trinity is the self-giving love of each other. Each person of the Trinity is focusing on the other members, and that brings about joy and delight. Uh, Keller in the book will point out that this is where we actually get our word choreography from, where you dance and flow around one another. That's who God is in his being. God is a triune God, is one who is not self-centered, but is giving and loving and serving. This is who God is. And if we want to be like God, we start to become a people who are not self-centered, but give to others and God himself in a way that continues to bring praise and joy, because that's the best way to live this dance that God calls us into. And the better we understand who he is, the more that I think we'll be able to begin to live that out. Like Christians will point to 1 Corinthians 13, where in the passage it'll say that, that God is love. That does not mean that love is God. What, what it means is that central to who God is, is loving community. Because God is a triune God. He has love in his essence before he ever made the world and everything that is known. And that means God is sufficient in himself. God lacks nothing in his being. God didn't make us because he was lonely or he wanted pets or anything like that. That's not why he made us. And when the Bible says that we're made in his image, it means that we were also made to need life-giving relationships. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of who God made us to be. It is why the more self-centered a person is, the more they destroy everything around them, including themselves, and they almost never, ever see it. This is why the story of the Bible and who God is is so important for us to understand and live in. It starts all the way in creation, where God makes everything in joy. In the Hebrew scriptures, there are these words, and they're like intense, profound joy and enthusiasm as God does things. And, and God said, and it was so, and indeed it was good. And God said, and so, and indeed it was good. And there are these words that are like, wow, look what God is doing. God creates in this pure enthusiasm. G.K. Chesterton, who's a theologian, lived about 100 years ago, uh, says that kids many times are a lot more like God than adults are. And he's wise. So this is what he says. Because children have abounding vitality. Because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people... For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Is it possible that, that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Oh, such a great line, right? We think we're so mature because we have this sin in our life, and we think we become self-centered, and we think we're so mature, and yet God, who is eternal, is younger than we are. 
The Bible starts in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, again, these words of intense joy. Uh, imagine if the Bible instead opened in maturity like, like we are. It would be, in the beginning, it was 9 a.m., and God decided he had to go to work. So he rolled out of bed, and he thought about making stars and all that stuff, but there are too many forms to fill out, so he left early and said, that I'll have to do. So he gets up on day number two, and then he comes along, and he separates the water, makes dry land, but he made it all flat just like Isla. Because, you know, he, he thought about, I'm going to make, yeah, I, I've been there, okay. He thought about mountains and jungles and glaciers, but it was way too much effort. So he said, nah, this will have to do. And he wasn't that excited about life, so he made cats and gold. <laughs> and goldfish and seagulls. But his favorite TV show was on. He said, oh, I have too much to do. And at the end of the week, he was very happy to stop. And he said, thank me, it's Friday. Right? That, that's, that's how we work. Right? We're always looking at, when can I get out of this? But that's because we don't understand who God is. When John Ortberg talks about this dance of God and all this, he talks about Genesis throbbing with that refrain, and God said, and it was sown, indeed it was good, and God said, and it was sown, indeed it was good. Day one, God says, let there be light, and there was light. And he says, God probably danced for joy when it happened. And the next day, God says, do it again, and did it again. Every day into this day, even this morning, and God says, do it again. And God is excited about it. He's excited about it. This is how it is with God, but not with us. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. Joy is God's eternal destiny. Creation was meant to mirror that joy. Man was meant to bring that joy in how we live and steward in his creation underneath what he has done. Because we understand who he is in his person. I mean, The question for us is, do we live in God's provision and joy? Do we? I don't think we do that often. Mankind is given this great gift to understand who God is in his person. And then after that, God then gives us creation. It's full of vibrancy. And God says, steward it well. Do anything you want. Just don't disobey me because that means you're seeking death. You're running away from your source of life and hope and joy. Instead, what we did is we don't follow God. We only follow him when maybe what he says lines up with what we want to do. We break relationship with God. We fall out of relationship with him. We bring sin and death into the world. We become self-centered, not self-giving. In Genesis 3, we're told when our relationship with God unraveled, all of our relationships unraveled as well. Everything started to fall apart. The beauty of the earth even started to be destroyed. Keller writes this, We lost the dance of joyful mutually self-giving relationships. And today, we are so afraid even just to be real with one another. We hide who we are. We don't want them to really know what's going on inside of us. And we think this is because there's pain and sorrow and we could get hurt. But that's not really true because God is the most joyful being in the universe and he has known sorrow and he has known rejection. In Isaiah 53.3, Jesus is also remembered as a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. This is when, why when the Bible speaks about joy, it doesn't speak about joy like we think we know it, where it's happiness and it's temporal. When it's characterized by God, it's deep and abiding. The scriptures even said that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. That's what true joy is. This is one of the reasons why the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was put into place, so we could be returned to relationship with God again. God sets it up so we could be back in relationship. This joy and hope and redemption we're meant to live in. It's why everything in the Bible points to Jesus' eventual coming, because God does not leave us in our brokenness and in our rebellion. The Son of God is born into the world to bring a renewed humanity. Even this word that we hate so much today that the Bible speaks about called obedience, and we freak out over it. When Jesus taught on obedience, he said the aim of that was joy. 
In John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God comes to us, and he brings us new life, a life full of hope and joy, that we could begin to live a God-centered life because we understand who he is in his person. Not a self-centered life, but a God-centered life. And here comes the question that I've kind of talked about all these weeks throughout this series, and that is, why did Jesus need to die for our sins? And last week, I spent the entire message really drilling down and just kind of talking about that. So here's a question, though, that I think comes to the side of that after that, and that is, what did Jesus get out of it? What, is it, what does he get out of it? He already had joy and community and glory and love. He didn't need us. So what benefit does he derive from dying to rescue us from our own sin? You know what the, I don't want you to be wrong. Like, okay. You know what the answer is? Nothing. Nothing. And it means that when he came to rescue us and die for us, he did it because he wanted to. Not because he had to. He was self-giving. He was serving. He was blessing. He was bringing his joy to us. If you are still in the book of John, chapter 16, flip back to John 17. Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17, and he says these amazing words. This is what he says, uh, verses 22 and 23. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus longs to do in us what God has been doing in himself for all of eternity. Jesus loves us and saves us without benefit to himself. And this is meant to produce in us as a people humbleness and grace and love for God and service to others and most importantly, a return to his great joy. Too often, as even Christians who hear about and believe in Jesus, we make everything about ourselves. We turn everything inward and we become so disillusioned because we aren't God. Because our problem is not that we are too happy for God's taste, so we don't have enough, enough joy for God's taste. That's what it is. Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Joy is a command. Joylessness becomes a sin, and yet the church today indulges in so much joylessness. We become so self-centered that we even think our salvation is about us, and it's not. It's about God and his goodness. Joylessness and self-centeredness is so easily tolerated within the church today. Think about this. How much damage has been done in our world by joyless Christians? How often have people misunderstood God because they attribute to him the grim, judgmental, defensive heart that so many of his followers have? I've got a guy in my gospel community, love him to death, but church kind of freaks him out. He says he comes here, I don't know why, but he says he comes here, right, and, and, he, and he doesn't mind it here. But even uh, last couple years ago, we did Christmas Eve service, and the, and the band dressed in, in suits, because it's Christmas Eve, we're trying to do something special. And he, like, he had like flashbacks, he's like, I had to leave, I couldn't handle it. He goes, he's five years old, sitting in a church, he had to go to the bathroom, and they made him sit there for three hours, because he wasn't allowed to move or talk or anything. And this has scarred him for the rest of his life. How much damage has been done by joyless Christians? Because we assume God is joyless because we don't understand who he is. God is a triune God who has joy in his person. God has relationship within himself. That's who God is. There is a being in this universe that doesn't want you to know God's joy. And it's not God. Francis de Sales writes this. He says, The evil one is pleased with sadness and melancholy because he himself is sad and melancholy and will be so for all eternity. He, de- he desires that everyone should be like himself. And joy in God doesn't mean that we don't experience pain or hardship or suffering or struggle or uncertainty. 
In Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, I, I love this. Uh, Nehemiah is he's talking to the people. They've, they've come back into Israel for the first time in, in decades. And the word of God is open to them for the first time in a long time. And they start to weep and are sad. This is what it says, Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. See, girly drinks. Apparently they're in the Bible. And send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is your strength. Its absence brings weakness. Dallas Willard said this, Failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Here lies the strength of temptation. Normally our success in overcoming temptation will be easier if we are basically happy with our lives. To cut off the joys and pleasures associated with our bodily lives and social existence as unspiritual then can actually have the effect of weakening us in our efforts to do what is right. In our lives, the key is not arrange your life so sin no longer looks, looks good. It's you focus on the joy of who God is. That's what brings this hedge around you because you understand the joy that God calls you to live within. The good news that God has come to rescue and save us. I always kind of relate it to this because I, I always wonder, you know, how someone who is very, you know, stoic and so how, how they handle some of this stuff. And if you've never seen traffic patterns in India, they are the worst in the world. Calcutta was the worst. And I always think of Mother Teresa. Do, you, do I ever think Mother Teresa ran around in traffic in Calcutta wishing she could flip everybody off? I don't think so. Because I don't think it was appealing to her because she found such joy in who God was, even in the midst of her hard times and sadness. Our life, and how we begin to live it is going to flow a lot out of our understanding of who God is. Our joy is going to flow out of that. Even psychologists will tell you that between the events that happen in your life and your response to it lies your beliefs and interpretations. The New Testament writers, they don't come in and say, have a positive mental attitude with your life. What they do is they talk about who God is in his person. What God continues to do and the resurrection and the triumph of Christ, even in the midst of all of their martyrdom and all that went on, in that suffering they found a deep abiding joy in the person of Jesus because they understand who he was and what God did to rescue us. The Trinity. Hopefully that makes a little more sense to you now. And I'm gonna, I want to end and tie this up in a, in a weird way. It's something I read in a book. I read a lot of books. Uh, anyway, and this is attributed eventually to uh, Robert Fulgham. Uh, he tells a story of a wedding that became unhinged by the mother of the bride. Apparently, the mother of the bride didn't get the wedding she wanted when she got married. So when her daughter got married, her daughter was going to get the wedding that she always wanted. And so there was an 18-piece brass band. It says, gift registries across the USA, 24 bridesmaids. <laughs> it's, that's like a wedding that's bigger than the invasion of most small countries. Anyway. <laughs> And he says, finally, their processional starts. And this is what he writes. The bride had been dressed for hours, if not days. The march of the maidens went on and on and on. Uh, while she, it's the bride, walked the food tables and sampled the pink and yellow and green mints, then through the bowls of mixed nuts, followed by cheese balls, black olives, glazed almonds, sausages with a frilly toothpick, shrimp and bacon, and a cracker with liver plate. To wash it down, her father gave her a glass of champagne. So when it becomes the bride's turn to walk down the aisle, what he says is you don't notice so much her dress or the decorations. What you notice is her face, because it's not the right color. Right? And he writes this. He says, what is coming down is a living grenade with the pin pulled out. So the, so the bride gets to the front, 
And she walks past her mother and throws up all of her mother over the ring bearer, the flower girl, the groom, the bridesmaids, and the pastor. And he writes this. Only two people were seen smiling. One was the mother of the groom. (laughs) And the other was the father of the bride. Also quite funny. And so he says, eventually they pull themselves together in the reception hall. And he says he never sees a groom kiss his bride more tender or anything. But the best part, he says that ten years later, everyone's invited back for another party. And what they do is they put up all these, they put up these three TVs because the mother of the bride had three TVs going, and they celebrated the disaster. And everybody gets to laugh at the craziness of all that's taking place. And that party was actually thrown by the mother of the bride. And so he says, the question is, he goes, how do people rejoice over this huge embarrassment and this tragedy? And he says, because in spite of it all, the bride still got her groom. And in the end, that's all that mattered. And they would dance 10 years after the thing and dance during that night of the reception. This is like God does over his creation every day, and God says, do it again. So how do we truly live joy-filled lives? How do we become full of joy in this world? We must be a people who look at who God truly is, what God has done, and what he still promises to continue to do. Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Heaven's groom gets his bride. Nothing can stop the sovereignty of God. And this is the joy, the lover and his beloved. God will dance with his people. Joy will be uninterrupted and complete. The prophet Isaiah says it like this, Isaiah 55, verse 12, Then you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. John expresses it like this, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is why we dance. Because our God has come to rescue us because of who he is. Our lives change when we better understand who God is and why he does what he does to begin to come to rescue us. And I think if we could just begin to get an understanding of God in his triuneness and why that is so important, I think it would begin to change how we see the world and see everything around us. And this is one of the reasons of who God is that we celebrate communion every single week. It's where you come and you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It's a reminder. And sometimes, yes, there's there's some self-reflection in that. But it's supposed to take us to a place where we can lay down our burdens, begin to live out in the great joy that God has provided for us. Understanding why Jesus came, because he himself promised that he would, to come and rescue And he calls us back into relationship with him again. And we get to live a joy-filled existence that, yes, sometimes has heartache and pain. But we have a deep abiding joy that goes above and beyond all of that because it's centered in who God is and what he has done for us. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to take communion and remember that. There's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you. The band's going to come up. And as they do, again, uh, there'll be people in the back. If you maybe have been in a place in your life and, and you've thought that the best way to honor God is to be very stoic and sad and, and oh, God's always angry and I've got to look angry like I'm constipated all the time, oh, right? Maybe you, could, you should pray with them. And they begin to walk you through to understand the goodness of God and the joy that he provides and the joy he longs for us to be a people who live within, that we could actually begin to live out the great joy that he has first given to us. 
I mean, maybe you're someone who've never even heard about this Trinity and who God is and his person, and you want to believe and trust in Christ and his great provision for you. They'd love to pray with you about that. Because our God is good. And I think every time we get some notion up in our head that, that God is just stodgy and stuffy, God constantly tries to break that down to get us to understand who he is. Yes, God is serious. God is serious about rescuing and saving his people, but God is also serious about his joy. And the joy he intends for us is his people to live within. And so I'd invite you, if you want to pray with somebody about that, they would love to pray with you about that. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door, and we give because uh, God gives so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's just a response to what God has done. Uh, there's some food outside. Grab something to eat. Maybe take some sermon notes. Sit down with some people this week and talk through God's joy and his grace and his provision. And maybe who you've thought about who God is, and maybe today your mind has been you know, moved a little bit to understand him a little bit deeper and better, and how that can actually affect you, and how it can actually begin to affect how we live out our lives, and how it can practically make a difference in the joy that we live in front of others, because we ourselves have first been saved. That we get to live out a life of great joy, because our God brings us great joy. Right, Sean? Yes. <laughs> the first service I go, right? And everybody's silent, and Sean goes... Right. I'm like, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for rescuing and saving and renewing and offering hope and forgiveness and grace. For God, today I ask that we'd be a people who better and better understand your joy. That it comes out of understanding who you are. That as a people, we're never really going to fully understand your joy until we get a glimpse of who you are. And that's why you reveal yourself in the way that you have this self-giving love and grace as you're always pointing to each other in the Trinity. And that we'd be a people, as we understand you better, would be a people who would give and love those around us and serve those around us and serve ultimately you in everything that we do. And that our joy would come to a place where it begins to become complete that we would understand that your joy in us actually becomes our strength. Not our, not our pain, not our stoicness, but our exuberant joy that is found in you. So I ask that today you'd begin to convict our hearts in ways that we become a more joyful people. A people who can bring hope to those around us, because our hope is found in you. And that as we begin to live in that hope and that joy, the world around us is changed, because we truly have become your ambassadors to the world, and we are truly reflecting who you are. So teach us to live out our lives in the great goodness and joy that you provide, because you are a great God who has rescued us in joy. Teach us to be those who live in that joy as well. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.